You can open your Bibles, your tablets, your electronic devices, what have you, to John chapter 6. And all I can say is it's great to be back on American soil. Um, I'm horribly jet-lagged, but totally jazzed to be here. So, so thanks for all who prayed for um, the Four Oaks Israel trip. And we are, we are back here safely. Thanks for praying for us. Um, thanks for those who, who followed faithfully on Facebook and our, and our blog. If you want to go and just kind of get a, a glimpse of, of some of the things that we, that we walk through um, during those 10 days away, RevGilbert.com, um, we did some blogging. And I can assure you that picture is very old. I am much better looking now than I was then, I, I promise you. Um, here, here's a picture of our Four Oaks group. This was us on the Mount of Olives overlooking um, the, uh, the Temple Mount site. And, of course, this is where... Um, uh, scriptural prophecy says Jesus will return one day. Um, you know, it's interesting, though, we all look so happy, clean, fresh, and rested, don't we? Okay, we, we're, we're, we're doing nothing compared to this picture that happened just shortly before that. Let's flip over to that one. And so, now, let me, let me explain something. It is normally a 20-hour flight from here to Israel via Miami to Heathrow to Tel Aviv, and we were flying on, on British Airways, and we flew into Heathrow, and it was 6 o'clock. Please get that off. It was 6 o'clock in the morning, and for some inexplicable reason, we kept circling the airport over and over again. I mean, it wasn't busy. There wasn't a lot of air traffic. It was strange. Then we land on the tarmac. We, we sit on the tarmac 30 minutes, 45 minutes. Um, we had gotten there in plenty of time to catch this connecting flight, of course, but we continue to sit. We find out later, apparently, they could not find anyone to come bring the stairs out to the airplane, okay? So this was socialism at its finest. It's where our health care was, was going. No one seemed in any rush to do anything remotely helpful for us at all. So, so by the time, in fact, get that picture back up again. Let me, let me just try to reconnect with the, yes, okay. This is the picture that was captured right at the moment when we knew there was no hope, okay? When they said, sir, you're, the next flight is six hours away. You're going to have to go sleep in a metal chair in our airport. That happens to be 30 degrees for some particular reason. And, and we're going to have to reroute you through Paris, and you're not going to get to Israel till 3 a.m. in the morning, and you're going to have a wake-up call at 6.30 a.m. in the morning. And by the way, um, we're going to lose your luggage just for fun, okay? So, so we got to France... Yeah, now get it off. Now, we got to France, and it's like, sir, your, air, your, your luggage is here, but for no particular reason, we don't have time to get it onto the plane with you. And so we're, we're, some of us are going 48 hours, 72 hours, and you can imagine I was grumbling, okay? I was grumbling, and I was blaming any and all I could, I could get my pen circulating towards. I was, I was complaining against the French because they're always easy to complain against, right? I was complaining against British Airways, the socialist, Phil Swartz, okay, who organized this trip. A curse be upon him. Not to mention Joe LeBlanc, okay? This is her countrymen who are failing us in our hour of need. Joe should have warned me. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Interestingly, our passage this morning is about grumbling, okay? A group of people who grumbled. This is a group of people in the synagogue at Capernaum. And by the way, 
We're in the middle of this discourse on the bread of life from the Gospel of John, and we were able, actually able to go to the ruins of the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, you would say, Pastor Paul, why are you wearing a t-shirt? It's very simple. It's the only clothes I had, okay? That, that was it. But we were right there. I even had Jack film me as I read this passage, and it was, it was anyway, this is where it happened. All kind of converged together. It was, an amaz- it was an amazing time. And again, seriously, thank you for all who were, who were really praying for us. But this is a people who gathered in Capernaum who had just seen the miracle of all miracles. 5,000 men, probably twenty upwards of 20,000 men, women, and children who had been miraculously provided for from five loaves, two fishes. And they've come to Jesus and they've asked him, Jesus, and Pastor Josh preached about this last week, what do you want us to do? What do you want us to do? And Jesus told them, believe in me. Trust in me. Follow me. And what we have here in this text is their response. And we're going to really learn two fundamental, at its core, things about ourselves in this passage. One is just the amazing power of unbelief, of how, of how deep our, our, our corrupt, sinful, hardened hearts go to discredit the truth that God has revealed to us. That's our natural condition. But that's not the best news of the story. The ba- that's, that's, that's some bad news. But the best news is the amazing power of God and what he does to overcome our unbelief. It's just amazing testimony of God's grace in this passage. So I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to read these 11 verses together. We'll flash it on the screen for you. How did the crowds respond to Jesus' call to follow him? Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Here's the critical verse of the whole passage. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Let's pray. Lord, this is a heavy passage. This is, um, there's all sorts of deep, penetrating theological truths. But Lord, help us to remember that you merely want us to locate ourselves in this passage and then to see who you are more clearly. Lord, you're a great God. You're a God who draws sinners. You're a God that, that clears away the blinders. 
You're a God that rescues us from our unbelief. And Lord, we want to see you more clearly. So we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. And take a seat. Three points, the symptom, the surgery, the surgeon. We alliterated that just for your listening pleasure. Let's talk about the symptom of unbelief for a minute. Look back at verse 41. It says, so the Jews grumbled about him. Now, if you go back to your English comp class or your, or your English 101, hopefully the word onomatopoeia means something to you. It's Greek for Pizza Hut. No, onomatopoeia, a word that sounds like what it describes, right? So when you, when you murmur, you're murmuring, you know, you, you say it, your murmuring sounds like the word that describes what you're doing. Literally, it means there was a smoldering discontent in this, in this synagogue at Capernaum. They had, they had loved the bread of Jesus, but Jesus himself, not so much. And the question is, after seeing all of these miracles upon miracles, it wasn't just that one. It was, it was this whole Galilean ministry. Why did they accept the gifts of Jesus, but not Jesus himself? What was going on here? What was going on in their hearts? Look at verse 42. They kind of put it quite simply, is this not the son of Mary and Joseph? How does he say, I've come down from heaven? In other words, you know, they, remember, they wanted to make Jesus king, okay? And, 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 and a king is great to come from Galilee. That's totally fine. Moses came from the desert, right? And that's who, that's who they're thinking about when they're thinking about Jesus. And they're saying, Jesus, we, you know, a king is great from Galilee, a king who, who has come to rescue us. But, you, but you're presenting yourself as a different kind of king. You're presenting yourself as a king that we need to submit to. Ooh, and that's a whole different matter. Jesus, we know your mom and dad. What do you mean you came from heaven? You're just a Galilean carpenter dude. Bread of life, follow you come down from heaven. See, they, they, were, they loved this idea of a king to rescue, but not so much this idea of a king to submit to. See, this truth that Jesus was proclaiming was going to make a profound claim upon their lives because if Jesus actually comes from heaven, that means he's not just here to give us stuff. He's not just here to rescue us from oppression. He's not just here to, to deliver us from the hands of the Romans. He's going to actually call us to certain things. See, that's, that's why they grumbled. See, we, we, we humans have an amazing capacity for self-deception. We have an amazing capacity that when we hear truth that makes a claim that we don't like, we will conveniently, won't we, in our flesh, sort of contort the Scriptures, contort the truth to, to sort, of, sort of meld with our experience. And that's what was happening in this passage. I remember it was a number of years ago, met with a man who, who was divorced. Um, he'd been involved in an extramarital relationship, and there was a season where he was asking the question, should he, should he turn back? Should he turn back to his family? Should he turn back to God? And, and the devastation of, what, of this man's choices were, were very clear. 
They were as clear as the miracles of Jesus. Let me put it that way. But when it came time to understand what the claims of Christ would make upon him in terms of faith and repentance, despite all the evidence to the contrary, he managed to explain it away. And that's what is going on in this passage. Remember, John is writing to Jews 60 years later. And, and he's writing this to them because he wants the readers of this passage to locate themselves in the story. Now, I think for the Jew reading this passage 60 years after the fact, knowing their Old Testament, we'd have immediately known how to identify this passage. Who was it that gave bread in the wilderness, manna? It was Moses. And, and, and who else grumbled in the wilderness about their bread? Who was that? It was the Jews, right? Numbers 11. It says that the rabble among them grumbled. They complained. Even after seeing what God had done, even after seeing their deliverance from the Red Sea and seeing a miracle upon miracles in the desert, even after seeing what God was, who he could do, when they didn't get their bread on time, in the way and in the manner in which they wanted it, they said, we don't trust you. See, it, this passage is not just about the Jews at Capernaum. It's not just about the Jews in the wilderness. This passage is about you and me. See, God is inviting us here to say, who are we in the story? You know, if I had been in Capernaum, oh, yes, I would have followed the bread of life. Oh, yes, I would have taken the bread of life into my heart. Oh, would you? Oh, would I? See, unbelief is so powerful. Our, our rationalizations towards sin and doing our own thing and walking our own way in our flesh, it's so powerful. Here's, here, here's the point of this message as we w- work our way into the text. It takes something incredibly supernatural and powerful to overcome it. See, that's, that's, that, that's going to be the great news of this passage. Okay, this is our lives and our unbelief and our hardness of heart. Those are the bad news. What's the good news? It's the surgery that God does. Look at verse, the second point, look at verse 44. Jesus tells them, don't grumble. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It invariably happens. Susan and I will be in the kitchen or some other part of the house, and somebody will call out from the other room, Hey, Dad, I'm thirsty. Okay? It's just a statement. Just a, just a statement. Not a question, not a request. I'm thirsty. Hey, Dad, it would be great if I got some orange juice right now. To which I want to say, well, la-ti-da, okay? <laughs> okay, it's not getting itself, right? Okay, it's not getting itself. Somebody has to go to the fridge, turn it on, draw it out. And it's interesting that the word that Jesus uses here, and I look back at verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That word draw literally means to pull, to to. To, to drop a bucket down into a well of water and to draw it up, to pull up. Because if somebody doesn't pull 
the water from the well, it's not getting up by itself. Okay, does that make sense? That's where the word comes from. Now, who is the water that Jesus is talking about? Not an inanimate object. See, the water is you. The water is me. See, that is our spiritual condition. We are the water in the well, spiritually speaking. This is why we can be given evidence upon evidence. That's why we can be given testimony upon testimony. This is why we can be given grace upon grace. We can, we can have all the, the, the physical things in the world that testify to God's grace and blessing. We can be told to repent and told to believe. But here's the thing. And parents, think about this with your kids. Unless the Holy Spirit draws them, it's all for naught. We have to be enabled. We have to have the blinders lifted off. We have, to be, we have to experience the miracle of sovereign, supernatural grace. Now, let me say something. It would be easy for me right now to shut down that discussion and move to something a little less controversial. Okay, it would be. Because this scripture clearly speaks to kind of the, the process of salvation and, and how this works and the sovereignty of God. And it'd be easy to blow past this. But let me just say, because of our commitment to preach through God's word, when these issues present themselves, we don't want to apologize. We don't want to shirk away. We want to embrace them. We want to understand them, even if, just like the crowds, they make a claim on us that we may feel uncomfortable with. So what is, this, what is this verse, verse 44, teaching us about ourselves and about the, about the process of salvation? John Piper's really helpful here, and he spells out, I think, what are probably the two ways to understand this. Okay? And let, let me kind of try to explain both of them. And here, here's, here's the first one. Interpretation number one for verse 44. Piper says, on the one hand... It could mean that no one can come to Jesus without God's drawing. We all agree with that. And God draws everyone, but only some come. So God's drawing doesn't cause the coming. It only makes the coming possible. And then the one who comes provides the decisive impulse or cause. Does that make sense? God, you can't come to God unless he draws you, but he's drawing everyone. Some come, some don't, and the ones who do are because they're the ones that are they're providing the decisive impulse or decision or cause. Okay, that's, that's one option. Option number two, and I think this is, this, is the, this is the better one. Or on the other hand... It could mean that no one can come to Jesus without God's drawing. And everyone whom he draws comes because God's drawing infallibly produces the coming. This would mean that the Father only draws some since all don't come. That the decisive cause of the coming is God and not man. Now let me tell you why I think it's the latter. In, in the brief time that we have, why this is relevant to us, 
why I believe this truth. Um, it will be controversial, but not for the reason you think. In fact, I believe understanding this verse correctly will deepen your gratitude, your heart, your humility, and your thankfulness, and your submission to God. So here, here, here's a few reasons. One, it's just the testimony of Scripture as a whole. We see it in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel compares us to a pile of dry bones, okay, that, that the Spirit has to give life to. We see it in 1 Corinthians 2, that the, natural, that the things of the, of the Spirit to the natural man are foolishness. Okay, in other words, we are not neutral spiritually. Okay, we are in our hearts. We're, we are, all of us are just like the crowds at Capernaum. So I think that's the testimony of Scripture. Secondly, the testimony of experience. Think about for a second how you were saved. For those of you who are trusting Christ in here, think back to that time. How did that happen? Were you just kind of going along your merry way? And saying, life is so awesome. But you know, I'm missing a little something. I wonder what that little something is. Oh, I know what it is. Jesus. Only Jesus can fill that little hole in my heart. Is, 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 and I kind of decided that independently, arbitrarily, from anything else going on in my life. Is that how it happened to you? Okay. That is not our testimony, is it? I mean, I, I mean from so many of you, Pastor Paul, I was mired in unbelief. I was mired in sin. I was mired in self-righteousness. I was mired in my autonomy, my independence. I was, I was going in completely the opposite direction until God got in front of me, literally, flagged me down, picked me up, and set my feet upon a rock. I promise you, however you were saved, there's some aspect of that experientially where you know if God had not sovereignly got involved in my life, I would be just like these crowds. But I think even, even more compellingly is that this is what we are seeing for the, third, the testimony of John. This is what we see over and over and over again, don't we? Nicodemus, what does he say? Um, born again? I can't get back into my mother's womb. Woman at the well, I'll take some of that water. You know, I don't want to be thirsty anymore. The invalid at the pool, there's no one to, bring, to, to, to draw me in. The people here at Capernaum, bread of life, we're, we're hungry. See, this is the condition of humanity, that, that we are on a one-way road to hell. And listen to what, and this is the testimony of John over and over and over again, is God's amazing sovereign grace. Look, let's, we're going to get to this passage in a couple weeks. John 6, 63. Listen to this. Oh, this is, I mean, let me say a word to parents. Your hearts break for your children that they would know the Lord. And you're thinking about all the ways that you could impress upon them humanly speaking, their need for Christ. Listen to this. Jesus says, it is the Spirit who gives life. You know, this is, this is so hard. The flesh is no help at all. No help. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me, again, you hear the same thing, unless it is granted him by the Father. 
No one can come to me unless granted by the Father. Now, let, let, let me just acknowledge something because I think we, we want to be honest with each other. That sounds hard, maybe, or sounds unfair. That God might be drawing some, but not drawing others. What, Pastor Paul, what about the freedom of my will? What about that? Guys, the ma- there is a, a major controversy in this text. But the controversy is not why all are not saved, but why are any saved at all? See, God doesn't go around zapping people with unbelief and making them unbelieve. Oh, oh there he is. He wants to believe. No, 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 no belief for you, right? No. Guys, we are already unbelieving. And God could justly pass over everyone, and we would get exactly what we deserve, which is hell and separation from him. Guys, if God let, guys, be careful about the free will stuff, because if God gave you your absolute free will, you will not choose him every single time. We will always choose the allure of life's bread over the bread of life. And that's why this, this passage is not bad news. This passage is amazing news that God gives sovereign grace to some who don't deserve it. What God does is decisive here. Look at verse 45. Jesus, again, picks up on the miracle of this. Why, we have to ask the question, why is God's sovereign work of salvation Why is that decisive? Why is that sufficient? Look at verse 45. It says, we will all be taught by God. That's a quote from Isaiah 54, 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Guys, the reason that God's surgery, that God's drawing us from our unbelief is decisive is, now listen to this, is amazing. God himself is our teacher. God himself is our teacher. You know, I can't tell you how many times that people on the trip to Israel asked Jack, what school do you go to? University of homeschool, okay, basically was the answer, right? We go homeschool, and then what's the second question? Ha ha, how do you like your teacher, right? And they're always asking how you like your teacher. We're like, it's the best teacher, it's the awesome teacher, right? Guys, who taught us in the way of salvation? God himself. So you don't come to salvation because of your powerful intellect and reason. You don't come because of your imaging education. In fact, all of those things can be massive obstacles because you think you don't need God. You come because the Father and the Son, and this is, I think, amazing, do the work of salvation together in your life. John MacArthur puts it this way. I think this is a great quote. He says, God purposes to send the Son, and then God purposes to draw certain people to the Son. The Son receives the people, keeps the people, raises the people from the dead to fulfill the Father's plan. It is not a plan to begin something. It is the plan for the complete glorification of those the Father Draws and folks, that is good news. While 
we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you. God loved you in your unbelief that it took a joint cooperative effort between Father and Son to bring you to God, and it is decisive. In this act of spiritual surgery that God does in the life of the believer, ultimately, ultimately, last point here, testifies to God himself, the surgeon. Let's, let's look back at the text. Look at verse 46. Jesus, it says, well, let me, let me just read, let me, let, let me read that. Not that anyone who has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. The challenge that, that we have to address in a pluralistic age is simply this. Why Jesus? Why Jesus above any other way? If you're here today and, and you're searching spiritually and you're trying to figure all this out, and you may be thinking that yourself, yes, Pastor Paul, why is Jesus the only way? Why is he the bread, capital B, bread of life? Why him? Why, is he the, why do we believe he's the only bread that will give life? Verse 46 tells us. It says it's because Jesus has come from God. Jesus has seen God. Jesus is God. You see, Moses who was the hero of the people at Capernaum, he gave bread. But here's two things. Moses died. And not only that, the bread that he gave perished. Do you see that? Look at verse 49. It says, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. In other words, Jesus is saying, You want bread, little you know, lowercase b. You want me to fulfill your needs. You want me to rescue you. You want, me, you want me to be your Messiah and be king and deliver you from the Romans. You want me to do what Moses did. But remember, Moses died, and the bread he gave perished. You see, everybody in here has a Moses. Everybody in here has some supply of bread whether you say it explicitly or whether it's lived out implicitly, that you and I believe that if we simply had an infinite amount of supply of this kind of bread, our lives would be good. What's your bread? For some, it's health. I work out enough, eat enough, take the right things. Insulate myself, take care of this temple. That's my bread. Maybe it's, maybe it's your money, your financial investments. If I can invest in the right things, insulate myself in the right way, leave an inheritance for my kids, have enough insurance, have enough kind of squirreled away, then we can withstand whatever this life throws at us. Or maybe you're, it's, it's, it's not money, it's because, you know, you heard the saying, I may be poe, but I'm proud, right? You've heard this, okay. I've got my heritage, I've got my family, I've got my background, I've got my reputation, I've got my name. That's, that's what must be protected at all costs. Or my family, or my career, and I'm investing in that. And, and I know that's going to be the bread that satisfies, that's going to be the bread that sustains, that lasts. 
everybody in here is eating from some pile of bread. What is yours? Jesus came to save you from that. You know, we, we on, near the last, end of part of our trip, we got to visit um, a mountain fortress of Herod the Great called Masada. And you can see the view from, from, from the top of Masada. It was, it was quite an impressive sight. Herod built these mountain fortresses all around Palestine for two reasons. One, so that he could go vacation. And two, that if anyone ever attempted to overthrow him in a coup, he had a place to escape to. Okay? And, and, and so this, this idea for, for Herod, Herod's bread, if you want to say it this way, was power. He was obsessed with self-protection. He had one of his wives and kids murdered, killed, assassinated because he, he, he feared them toppling his empire and overthrowing him. And so he built these safe houses where in his mind he said, you know, if I have to, I can always go here. That will protect me. Go back to that last slide just for a second. The Romans showed up in 67 AD, and this is the remains of what they built. It's hundreds and hundreds of feet high, a siege ramp, that gave them a way to ascend from the valley floor all the way to the top of that mountain where they proceeded to burn Masada to the ground, which they did. And then what's interesting in a fate of irony, you can, you can drive, on the way to Masada, you can drive right by Herod's tomb. And there he is. And now people, rich Westerners, are getting to visit his home 2,000 years later. That's how temporary the bread of this life is. So here's the question. What's your bread? What's your Masada? What's the place where you just feel like, that's if I only had some more of that kind of bread, little bee, then my soul would be right. My soul would be good. Jesus says, I came, 644, I came to draw my people to myself and to show them I am more glorious, magnificent. I am the bread of life. I am capital B, bread of life. You're searching for little b. I'm the big B. I satisfy. I am here. I invite you to come into me. Verse 50 tells us why. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it. And this is amazing news and not die. Verse 51, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Guys, whether you know it or not, that's the bread you need. And my prayer for all of us this morning is that God would draw you to himself, would lift the blinders, would show you he is the bread of life. Verse 51, and we'll get into this next week, says, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You know, we're going to talk about how this was misunderstood by, by the crowds, but let me just say something about this and we'll be done. You know, we got to experience a lot of um, unique meals in Israel. 
if I see another piece of pita bread and hummus, I am going to vomit, okay? If you had one right here, I would throw up on this pulpit, okay? I cannot. It was some good eats, okay? I could go to the buffet once and gain three pounds. Jack could go four or five times and somehow lose weight, but nonetheless, so we, we had incredible Mediterranean cuisine because we all recognize, right, that what we eat is a big deal. See, when, when, when you eat something, you, you're taking it into you. It literally, in some amazing way, becomes a part of us. It nourishes us. It strengthens us. It keeps us alive. Do you see why Jesus is talking about bread here? He said, I'm your bread. I'm the only thing that will give you life. The question we have to to leave here today with who's our, who are we in the story? And have we received Jesus as this bread? And, and when we can testify, yes, Pastor Paul, Jesus is my bread, we don't boast in that. We go to 644 and say, God, thank you for revealing that. Thank you for revealing that. May it move me to humility. May it move me to praise. May, may it move me towards praying for others, knowing, God, that you're the only one that can do this. Have you received this Jesus as your bread? I hope so. Let's pray.